0: let's engage with Paul Mace for this evening thank you and thank you for coming well neoliberalism is broken that's actually the title of chapter one of my book and a phrase I always try and use to grab people's attention in the lectures I give but in 2016 it became more than a metaphor Brexit was the first big crack in the multilateral institutional order that has underpinned globalization and free market economics since 1989. But it wasn't the the last big crack Uh, because Donald Trump's victory and his blitzkrieg uh, against the rule of law uh, that is underway right now are a change of a different magnitude to Brexit. America designed globalization benefited from it the most imposed it on much of the rest of the world so when America votes to end globalization that is a historic moment and it's a moment especially that I know that the young people the people in there under the age of 35 who, who, who really almost don't remember the last historic moment which is the fall of the Berlin Wall 1989 the collapse of the Soviet Union two years later this is of that magnitude Um, when that happens when America threatens the end of the multilateral system of trade and even goes so far as it did this week to threaten its own central bank with politicisation and with the withdrawal from not just the Paris Climate Change Treaty but something much more closer to the hearts of most capitalists which is the Basel III Accord on international banking uh, what we're seeing is the potential end of the positive sum game that was neoliberalism and the globalisation and the start of a zero or negative sum game where one big power plays out economic, political, diplomatic rivalry with another in the book Post-Capitalism I predicted that unless we make a break from free market economics as we have run it since 1989 globalisation is going to break up because consent to be ruled by a global business elite is already fragile, especially as uh, growth in many countries flatlines and as one generation realizes that the promise that its kids will be richer is gone into reverse. Um, so on this basis, I said, look, you know, once once it becomes clear to people that the game of the world is zero sum that we don't necessarily, as we always thought we did, benefit, uh, you know, if China benefits, America benefits. If jobs are created in China, America benefits. That was the old positive sum game. Once people realise that there is a negative sum game, it becomes logical for everybody, not just Trump, not just the Midwestern racist American voter, everybody to head for the exit from globalisation. And I'm afraid, I think, that the Trump election is the signal that that process has begun, but we can stop it. It is reversible and must be resisted. The main part of my book explores the problem of what replaces neoliberalism, what replaces a failing era uh, since 2008 in the history of capitalism. What I asked myself was how do we propose a clear, simple and workable alternative to this failing free market global economic system that is not simply a return to what we in the economics world know as Keynesian economics. That is not simply a return to the state-led capitalism and high male manual employment and high hierarchy and as we now know, high, high levels of abuse of power by men and priests and all kinds of other people how do we avoid the answer being a return to the past and again when I started writing it that was a nice theoretical construct but we know our politicians who very very clearly do want that is their programme that set your watch back to 1956 is the programme um, of many of these uh, right wing uh, nativist and, uh, and xenophobic parties um, the reason we have to ask that question, what is our alternative to that, is not just moral, it's not just because we're anti-racists, it's because we cannot honestly promise people that a world of high employment will exist. And Trump and Brexit and Pauline Hanson and Marine Le Pen make these questions no longer the subject of a futurology book, they, it, you know, what I'm talking about tonight is presentology because of course it is a long way from what we're going to talk about, the main subject I'm going to talk about, which is technological change, to the horrible world, the grubby world of Hansen and Le Pen and Trump. But there is one issue that actually unites them, the debates they want to have, with the debates we want to have, and that is work. What is the future of work? If you want, as the neo-right does, to offer people a future based on secure well-paid industrial work you have to bring jobs onshore, prevent them from going offshore and even more, and this is the honest thing, you have to retard technological progress because when uh, I've stood in uh, the automobile factories of Michigan 2-3 years ago and seen on the floor the black outline of where the production line used to be 9 tenths of the hall is empty, it's an echoing space and one tenth of it is a slimmed down production line with a thousand workers where 10,000 used to be producing more, producing more efficiently not just with robots but with machines that tell them which wrench to use how tight to pull it if they have pulled it too tight to loosen it again the computer tells them all of that That, so when Trump says bring Mexican jobs back to America what jobs Uh, is is the obvious question but if you want, as I do to move beyond utopias based on work and to promote technological change you have to promote also and this is something I think much of the futurology industry doesn't quite understand a revolutionary and radical and socially just solution to the way society works, to the way markets work, to the way consumption takes place, the way even cities and towns are configured so the issue at the centre of the debate about now, and the issue and the debate about the future, uh, is work, the lack of high-paying jobs in many Western societies, which the population has begun to blame on contingent factors like migration, like offshoring, or even blame on the short-term recession we just, you know, the latest thing that just happened to you, um, is a more fundamental problem. Because we are, I will argue, looking at the strategic decline in the amount of work humanity has to do to survive on the planet. Now, I'm not the first person to explain that what's different about information technology, nor the first to say that neoliberalism doesn't work. But my book is one of the first to say these two facts are linked. Uh, so before we go any further, I, want, I do want to explore a little bit about what, how I understand the crisis of the current system. Why is neoliberalism broken? Now, by neoliberalism, I mean the whole world system. Other academics, other writers, mean the ideology of Western capitalism. So what we used to call the Washington Consensus. I, I'm not so bothered about the ideas. I'm bo- bothered about the actuality. For me, also, neoliberalism doesn't just mean countries that adopted Anglo Saxon free market economics, like America, Australia, Britain. For me, they just take one side of a, of a, of a bigger deal, which China, Germany, uh, Japan, South Korea take the other side of that deal, which is to produce and to lend and to not offshore jobs and, in fact, to raise the well being of their own population. Even Germany has done that. So for me, it's like a yin-yang, the whole system is globalization, not just the countries that call themselves neoliberal or free market. Um, so that's, that's by way, that's not a definition of neoliberalism, but it's a typology, it's what am I talking about? I'm talking about the whole world as it's currently organized. Um, neoliberalism for me was an attempt to solve the problems of the Keynesian era, the economic model which failed in the mid-70s, which many of us grew up within and it did, solved it above all by doing one thing that I will insist is the fundamental impulse of neoliberalism and that is to destroy the wage bargaining power of organised labour and it replaced high wages with low wages plus credit Item 1 is, the, is, is what happened to uh, productivity and, and wages in America since the 1950s until the point where they decide they can no longer tolerate a highly organised and well-paid domestic workforce, um, consumption—sorry, com- hourly wages and productivity uh, march forward together. But since the 1970s, hourly wages in America have more or less flatlined. Some countries do better, countries like this one, which have high... Um, natural resources and room to expand but others which have absolutely chosen to, to flatline their own uh, their own um, w- pricing power of their own uh, workforce have uh, uh, more or less followed that path so it succeeds for a time because productivity carries on growing um, and for uh, for several, two or three decades the neoliberal model did drag large parts of the developing world, the global south, China, India, Latin America, into real and irreversible development. It also unleashed the biggest technological cha- period of technological change we've ever seen. Um, so and that's in that context, you know, the smashing of the British miners unleashes the world which gives us Facebook and not what we had at the time of the miners' strike if you lived in France, Minitel a green screen, state-owned, early version of the internet. Um, It then triggers three boom and bust cycles and then a global collapse. Which although you have lived on the edge of and survived, I would still say is the most important thing that has happened in your lifetime. Because, as a result, this has happened. What you want to be looking at? I don't know I've got a pointer. I don't think I've got a pointer. But anyway, what you want to be looking at is the 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 um, the, the grey line. Okay, so it's the it's the grey and not the white line. <laughs> Can you see a grey line? Yeah? It's, so debt has risen from 100 right hand scale, uh, 100% of GDP to 300% of GDP since 1980. Uh, this is world debt. Um, whereas, um, and in billions on the left hand scale, it's from, it's from 50 billion, so it's 40, 50 billion to 180. Um, now, that's not completely up to date because since the 2008 financial crisis, uh, we added to a debt pile of 230 trillion another 57 trillion. So, when we, uh, we all thought, ah, oh, there'll be a 10 years uh, downturn while we pay down the debt. Yes, there has been a 10 year downturn, but we have added quite a lot to the debt. So that's another thing that is kind of a significant... You know, we've got, I know we've got medics and nurses and all kinds of people who spend their lives monitoring graphs for fine movements. That was a, somebody's medical chart, you'd be very, very worried. Um... <laughs> And well, what's the outcome of these three booms and busts and the racking up of massive amounts of debt and then the survival mechanism of... Some of this debt is public debt taken on to, say, bailout banks. Some of it is private debt taken on by households to carry on surviving. But then the other survival mechanism is quantitative easing, the printing of $12 trillion worth of... Uh, a plus, uh, tr- $12 trillion of free money to splurge around the world to keep the patient alive. What's the result of that? These are the most important interest rates in the world. Uh, I'm not going to talk about long cycles in this introduction. Uh, It's in my book. I I talk at length about the theory of long cycles in capitalist development. But that is a a 50-year wave deflating. Uh, So, you know, basically capitalism is money that grows. Even Karl Marx more or less defined it like that. It's self-expanding value, says Marx. Money that grows kind of of its own accord. Well, uh, as one of my friends in the bond market said, I didn't go to university. And become a kind of rich and affluent bond market trader, only to see the interest rate on bonds reduced to zero. Because that's not capitalism. That's like communism. He says to me. Well, what we're seeing is the is the secular decline of the returns on the most easy and uh, the, the safest. Uh, bet in capitalism which is to lend to your own government and that's not even up to date either, it's lower, there's about 12 trillion of negative yielding government debt in the world so what, that, all those three graphs, let's rerun through them, stagnating wages mushrooming debt uh, and the slow kind of winding down of the clock of capitalist accumulation (coughs) add up to the real threat of what uh, the US former treasury secretary Larry Summers calls it secular stagnation because when basically money cannot self expand all kinds of other problems kick in about incentives to innovate, incentives to invest so that you know, it's not just crazy leftists like me or uh, born again uh, you know, pessimists like Larry Summers but that most of the world's central bankers who assembled in Shanghai in March last year expressed the worry that this is going to lead to stagnation. And as Mark Carney, the British central bank governor, put it, um, we face a low growth, low inflation, low interest rate equilibrium. Uh, The only word I disagree with there is the word equilibrium, because you cannot have equilibrium when there is low growth, especially not in a world where 2 billion extra people are due to be born into it in the next 35 years and one that is facing a catastrophic threat of climate change. So the financial crisis that began in 2008, I would argue, has now become a social crisis spilled over into geopolitical fragmentation and is going to get worse than that. We had the rise now and people, from the moment we started covering it in 2008, people said, it was almost like journalists kind of sat there drumming their fingers going, when's the far right going to turn up? Well, it's turned up. Uh, in the Republican Party, in the Austrian presidential election, where by just a few percentage points they managed to defeat uh, an open, far more neo-right winger than, than, than Trump or Hansen uh, from becoming president and in the British Brexit debate. So the hard question should be: What should replace neoliberalism? Clearly, for the one percent, the Davos elite, it's an impossible question. They've had eight years to to to, to uh, you know to think about it, and as we say on the British quiz programmes, I'll have to hurry you. Uh, they can't seem to uh, <laughs> they can't seem to come up with the answer. And uh, why not? Because they had convinced themselves: If you go to university and study mainstream economics or political science, that The current system, despite its flaws, is more or less the perfect form of society. Um, Everything that came before it was leading to this, and therefore it is quite an intellectual challenge to come up with the idea that it's actually not, it's broken and it's it's doomed and it's causing all kinds of horrible uh, side effects. And, and you know, the evidence was there, you know, friction free capitalism, as Bill Gates called it. Thomas Friedman publishes a book called The World is Flat. Um, we get famously uh, Fukuyama's book, The End of History. The, the clue is in book titles. Um, <laughs> the, the, they couldn't imagine something better. Uh, and it's also become an impossible question for mainstream economics. Now, the, the economist Paul Romer, who plays two roles in my, in, 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 he pops up twice in, in, in my in my introduction. Um, recently uh, said a very influential and very mainstream e- economist basically said in, in in a in a in a, in, a, in a in a peer-reviewed academic paper of some status that the mainstream economics profession has gone backwards for thirty years. That's quite a big claim to build. what that means is this building and all the other buildings all over the world with beautiful sort of um, sponsors' names on them are actually teaching you bullshit. <laughs> Now, I don't go as far to say that, but it, the implication is that, 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 that that's, what, that's what could be happening. Roma blames it on, on an addiction to abstract models, which I think we could talk about in the discussion, is right. But I trace that back to a more fundamental cause, and that is that macroeconomics, like neoliberalism itself, does not have a theory of the world. It's theory of the world is like a funnel in which all of history was destined to produce 21st century Australia, Britain and America Um, and it doesn't have a theory of historicness or challengeability or or temporariness about about human society it assumes the present reality is the closest to perfection we're likely to get all forms of society before it were just imperfect forms of now Um, it fails to understand, above all, capitalism as a complex adaptive system I argue that what we're going through is both the crisis of a 25 year old economic model and the beginning of a more epochal change similar to the one which took place 500 years ago when mercantile capitalism replaced feudalism in the West. At that time, the English philosopher Francis Bacon wrote Printing, Gunpowder, and the Compass. These three have changed the whole face and state of things throughout the world. Now, call me a silly old technological determinist, but that is not far off the kind of process we are living through. Within a hundred years of writing that, the world had changed fundamentally. So fundamentally it was unrecognisable from the time in which Bacon was born. And the technologies that enabled it were, you know, sailing, what, you know, sailing, printing uh, and shooting people uh, (laughs) as you know all too well here uh, in New South Wales. Um, (laughs) Here's how I think information technology is doing the same thing. Capitalism, I argue, is a complex adaptive system that is failing to adapt. That its ability to adapt has always relied on, well, replacing what is automated by new technology with new jobs, new skills, new needs new higher levels of human life uh, that demand um, and provide a higher standard of living to most people. That's why your university lecturer is quite right when he sees you selling Green Left Weekly or whatever outside to say People have always predicted the end of capitalism and they've always been wrong and that is correct. But my argument is that information technology disrupts that process of adaptation. You know, look around you in Melbourne or or Sydney or London and the most beautiful buildings are usually built between 1895 and 1914. The last great upsurge of of, of capitalism, the, the, the last uh, industrial revolution, the so-called second industrial revolution. Uh, you could point to numerous examples from them, people will know about the production line, uh, the, the, the arrival of scientific management techniques, but the one I like the best is the replacement of vaudeville theatres in about ten years by movie theatres. Vaudeville theatre had a workforce of about the size of a small ship. You know they're, up, they're scurrying up and down on ropes. Uh, on the biggest vaudeville theatres in London, the Coliseum, they had greyhound racing on stage. That's how big it was. Um, it's replaced within ten years by movie theatres. Movie theatre workforce is a guy, uh, as in Cinema Paradiso, uh, cranking the uh, the, um, the the movie movie projector, two usherettes, and a person on the door. But what happens? Does capitalism collapse? No, because other jobs are created, which soak up. The workforce p- replaced by the movie theatre. Um, but information technology is disrupting that in several ways, which make, for me, post capitalism possible. It is di- disrupting the price mechanism, it is dis- disrupting the relationship of work and wages, and work and non work, as we call it, life. Um, it is creating, for the first time in 250 years, an innovation cycle where machines destroy jobs, but new jobs are not created on higher wages, and the, and the, and the, the, the goods created are not more expensive. Um, and it is enabling a new kind of organisation to take place, which is, which is allowing, at the edges of capitalism, unmeasured, unnoticed, and uninterested uh, Uninteresting to the mainstream, uh, a new kind, new sector of the economy where collaboration, non-ownership, and non-managed spaces are rising. So let's take these phenomena one by one and look at uh, the this, the spontaneous defence mechanism capitalism is uh, adopting to prevent what I would argue is a spontaneous arrival, a, a, a process within 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 highly technological societies. Uh, from taking place. First of all the price mechanism. Roma who I've already mentioned in the context of slamming macroeconomics is a key figure because in 1990 he published uh, a paper which was so weirdly titled that when the British Labour politician Ed Balls mentioned it in the British Parliament everybody laughed at him and its title is Endogenous Technological Change. You may know it as the theory of endogenous uh, technological change and um, all it means all it means is that uh, if you copy and paste something forever the cost of reproduction in normal mainstream economics, nothing to do with Marxism, should be close to zero because if, you can, if it costs you nothing in terms of energy, mass or le- human labour to reproduce something then it is, it's, 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 its lawful cost in a market economy, is going to fall quite close to zero. It's something the the business theorist Jeremy Rifkin calls zero zero the zero marginal cost effect. Well, basically, if I can copy and paste uh, the, the, the 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 MP3 file of the Beatles' 1963 hit "Love Me Do" forever, infinitely, with a, you know an eight on its side, then basically the 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 It is likely that somebody somewhere will be able to reproduce it for for zero, as all pirates, um, music piracy, um, will will attest. It's different than the vinyl version. And also, if I use it, you can also use it. It's not like a parking space or a vinyl record. If I park in your parking space, you get annoyed because you can't park there if I play Love Me Do on my iPod while you're playing yours it's the, nobody cares um, it, is, it, is, uh, it is also not degraded information goods are not degraded by use in a way that um, or to the extent that physical ones are so, so basically put, Roma says if we let market forces rip on information goods prices are going to fall right, what has happened? Well, in some uh, technologies, prices have fallen. The the price of a gigabyte of memory has fallen exponentially. The price of a megabyte of processing power on your silicon chip has fallen exponentially. Uh, Ditto for storage. And we're not just talking, therefore, about digital things. These are machines, you know, hard drives, Wi-Fi, bandwidth, and silicon chips are machines as the Oxford professor of information philosophy Luciano Floridi puts it information is physical it requires mass and energy for its representation so, it's not, so in addition to all these other exponential falls here's another one uh, basically I, I subtitle this graph um, don't put your daughter into the DNA processing industry, Mrs Worthington. It's a, it's a paraphrase of, a, of an old musical song. Um, if you thought your kid was going to have a high value job processing DNA, look at that graph. Um, for about 10 years, uh, after 2001, the costs fell in line this, at the same rate as Moore's Law. Moore's Law is an impressive law whereby processing power doubles on the, on the, you can get on what you can get onto a silicon chip doubles in 18 months. So for about from about 2001 to 2008, um, the cost tracks computer progress, and then it just falls off a cliff. So it was 100 million per genome uh, in 2001, and it's now a thousand and falling on thousand dollars and falling now. Um, that's a big fall. That's what we call exponential technology. And it's not me, but Deloitte, the highly capitalist uh, uh, consultancy firm, which said and claimed not only that these exponential falls are going to happen, but they will never stop. Unlike the electric light bulb, unlike the blast furnace or the steam engine, which all stopped their, 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 the, the falling price effect at a certain point, this never stops. I don't know whether I would be prepared to make that claim, but uh, Deloitte never bothered then to answer, well, what happens to capitalism? Uh, which I think is a far more interesting question as to whether it ever stops. So... Another example I've got here, which I'm just wondering for, is um, the price of a million transistors printed onto a silicon chip 30 years ago was €220 and it's now six cents. What what need have we of a million transistors when on here there's a three billion on the chip that runs this iPhone? Well a million transistors is a Pentium 4 computer I mean, some of you will remember how nice that was to have one of them. Uh, that the cost of the processing power of that uh, is is six cents. Um, not nothing, but you know, if I stole a six cent piece from your uh, pocket, you would not call the cops as I run out the door. Um, but capitalism has spontaneous defence mechanisms against these falling price uh, effects and the first is to suppress competition through the building of monopolies on a scale not even the anti-monopolists of America 100 years ago Theodore Roosevelt and his allies could have imagined you know by market capitalization and size google facebook netflix uh, alibaba the, these these giant corporations apple itself are way way in excess in their market capitalization of the size of standard oil j p morgan us steel were 100 years ago I would also argue that they, and this is almost the nub of the whole question, that they are, before we've even considered the, this slight problem of collapsing price, they are, um, their, their current valuations are all premised on every one of them eating the other. Um, the, the, all their valuations are way, way too high, even before we consider the, the impact of the post-capitalism effect. But the second way that that, that, the capitalism defends itself is not just through monopoly but by those monopolies um, imposing legal protection on intellectual property so that this tendency is reversed or or resisted. Copyright laws, technological tricks to enforce copyright, uh, patents. Um, In some industries it works, we still pay 15-20 US dollars uh, to go and watch a blockbuster movie in the full knowledge that we could all get it in the car park for half that on a DVD the same day but you know we want the experience of being in the movie theatre and hearing people to answer their mobile phone calls and eat popcorn (laughs) uh, for some reason Um, but in others it's not and Kenneth Arrow uh, the doyen of of, of economics in the 1960s put his finger on it when he first started to think about information other than as a public good because until the war when you know during the World War II um, Profiting from intellectual property was illegal. It was actually outlawed to, to exploit the patent uh, on an invention. Only profits could be made in the production process, not in the intellectual property sphere, under the US law of 1941-42. Of, of um, later, we began to understand, well... Information is not just what's in a library, it could be property, it could be a a commodity. And Arrow says, to the extent that we're in a free market with competition, the production of intellectual property can have only one aim, and that is, Arrow says, to create the scarcity of information. So, think about it mentally. The purpose of the Monopolies Plus Information Property Law is to create scarcity where it need not exist. That's different from a monopoly sitting on innovation. You know, the old problem about monopolies, You know the famous one with the, RAV, the RAV4 where they invented a way of running a RAV4 on a lithium-ion battery um, 30 years ago, piled them all up in the desert and burned them uh, because they weren't ready to unleash that yet on the world. That's not the main problem. It's the problem of placing value and price on stuff that shouldn't have value or price. But there are two problems. Monopolies erode. Competition does erode monopolies. Think about BlackBerry. Uh, used to be called that, that word used to mean a, a, a small fruit that you can eat, make jam out of. Then, it, for about 15 years, it meant the most powerful technology in the world, and now it means, to most young people, now a small fruit you make uh, <laughs> <laughs> jam out of. Uh, think about what happened to Microsoft Windows. Um, sure, you know um, you can you can monopolise for a while, uh, but it, it can't carry on forever. Um, And these post 2004 tech monopolies, uh, what are they there to do really? They're there to harvest what we call um, externalities, the positive spillovers of me and you and everybody in this room tweeting or conversing online with each other about what I'm saying hopefully or something else equally distracting. Um, you know, that, that, all, that belongs to them the positive externality of us networking with each other is not ownable by us because of the technological gardens they have created for us to play in uh, so they, they base their monopoly power on externality, on artificial scarcity and on devouring each other but it can't last In fact, the really interesting thing is capitalism is supposed to be a granular process. It's supposed to exist independently of the law. And in fact the theory of neoliberalism is that the state isn't really necessary for capitalism. You get all kinds of heterodox theories in in political science that say the state created capitalism but that's not what is taught in most universities. The idea is capitalism reproduces itself independent of governments and because it is a granular and spontaneous process to do with markets. The moment it becomes necessary for a capitalist to reinvent property, intellectual property law on the computer screen every day in the law, the law office of the big law firm um, Well, we know what happens to systems that have to be reimposed by a bureaucratic diktat every morning because we saw what happened to, to the Soviet Union and so it, 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 it creates a fragility about capitalism that is new let's look now at the related issue of what information technology is doing to work. I think I'll just let this quote stand for itself. It's doing the rounds again on Twitter, but it's actually from, a, from the People's Daily, um, Chinese uh, state newspaper, 2015. Um, this is not an unusual um, story, uh, where you, know, um, you can absolutely, uh, you can reduce the workforce by 10%, um, up the output by 250, and ensure better, better quality. Machi- at manual labor, machines are better than us. Um, first of all, technology is blurring the edges between work and leisure. So we sit on a plane like this. It's this my great favourite stance on, on a plane. That's how I, I work. Um, it, because I'm next to 300 other poor souls also flying to Brussels trying to type out whatever it is that, that their work involves. Um, If it was a factory, that plane would be closed down for health and safety reasons because we are too close and yet of course it is a factory. We're all voluntarily working uh, because we work into information workers, high-skilled workers now work to modular targets not by uh, by the hour. You know it doesn't matter to our boss if I flip over halfway through and watch Game of Thrones uh, or go to sleep as long as I get my target completed. Um, Next information creates the possibility of of, um, the blurring of work and life and the detachment of of payment from the actual hours of work done, on top of which it's creating the possibility of rapid automation as this quote suggests. Um, Somebody pointed out to me now that um, Rio Tinto has these huge lorries. Uh, driving into the to the uh, iron mines um, wherever they are in the middle of the Australian you know, desert uh, but they're controlled from Perth the same way as a drone in Afghanistan is controlled from RAF Waddington in, in the East Anglia in England. Uh, that we already have quite a lot of what we're going to need to mass automate a lot of the things that used to need um, hands and brains in the same place but we're not doing it. Um, the system, the neoliberal system we, we created, does rely on us all having access to credit, access to finance. To do that you're going to have to have a job. The last thing they need is, is mass unemployment because then you're detached from the finance system and you're detached from the most important system that they are allowing us to use in order to feed their intellectual property production machine, which is your cell phone. Because you're really not going to have much of a full functional smartphone if, you don't, if you've been long term unemployed. Um, it is the last thing unemployed people give away, they, they'll cling to it, they talk time uh, but nevertheless, capitalism requires us to have jobs so we can be in the finance system and in the communication system, otherwise we're not users, we're not clients, we're not in the system. And so instead of automating jobs out of existence, I would argue what we are doing is creating what David Graeber, the anthropologist, calls bullshit jobs, jobs that do not need to exist. And for me, the best example of that is the, um, the hand car wash. In Britain, we used to have 4,000 machines in, 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 or in petrol stations uh, that washed a car. Uh, no, there is 1,000, but there are 20,000 unregulated hand car washes employing often precarious, sometimes even trafficked migrants uh, and wh- where, where five guys with a rag can undercut a state-of-the-art machine. How do we get a capitalism like that? Well, we did it by smashing organised labour power and by preferring the creation of precarious work to automation and innovation. In the process, by the way, the hand car wash pours the dangerous chemical, unregulated, straight into the public sewer system. The petrol station has to go through all kinds of uh, regulated uh, um, paperwork and and assurance to to stabilise and, and make safe Uh, the chemicals involved. It's just a a, a lose-lose, full stop, but we seem, we all drive into them and, you know, we kid ourselves, it's because the guys won't scratch the car, and the machine did. Uh, That's that's not really true. Um, So we're even, ludicrously, using machines now to make manual work survive another good example is the GPS that Amazon tried to put on the arms of the fulfilment workers you know, you want, let's track, uh, uh, use a machine to track where people are going rather than, well now finally you know, we now get drones, Amazon's now investing in drones to replace people but for a long time, you know, this fantasy that the machine can control the manual worker talk to a cab driver talk to people, you know, people who have uh, GoPros in, in, their, in their truck uh, uh, cab feeding live imagery Uh, to their bosses. Why not just invest in driverless cabs if you're so concerned about controlling what the cab driver does uh, and the truck driver. So look, the result of all this is in the middle of the biggest forward advance of technology ever, um, productivity is stagnating. We're just not, productivity, if you just keep employing people on minimum wages and not automating, you're just going to get stagnant productivity and that's what we've got. And if we imagine this continuing, then the dynamic described by Thomas Piketty, where asset wealth increases for the 1%, but everybody else's life stagnate, does look likely, and for me what it looks like, is a form of neo-feudalism, where the rich are quite happy for productivity to stagnate, for growth to stagnate, because their wealth is not reliant on it. As long as you can corner the market in high-rise luxury apartments here in Sydney, and go on, uh, you know, basically reducing the supply of affordable housing to ordinary people you, whoever you are, foreign Chinese, Malaysian homegrown, Sydney business person, Donald Trump you will get rich. It doesn't matter what happens to the rest of the economy that's true of the semen of horse races horses, racehorses, it's true of uh, Impressionist paintings it's, it's true of any asset, as long as you can create the artificial scarcity of it then the rich can go on getting richer whatever happens to the economy and that's why the threat of neo-feudalism is a real one. But there's a different uh, route out. The, sh- the title of this lecture is Can Robots Kill Capitalism? And the short answer to that is no. But to fully utilise a combination of robots, AI, the deployment of the info- infotech into healthcare, into smart cities, into virtual and mixed reality, we are going to have to transcend capitalism. We're going to have to destroy and Revive it. There's a great German word which Karl Marx often used, Alfhaben, which describes this process, best, best translated as sublation in English. Um, the tools we do it will not be the ones the 20th century left used, which are state planning and public ownership. But we all need some of this, I argue. It will be a new non-market economy which I argue we can see emerging out of the collaborative networked organisations that have grown up spontaneously using networked information technology over the past 15 years. Wikipedia, open source software, creative commons licensing in in, um, creative work, peer-to-peer production, uh, maker labs, all of these things are seen as hobbies or niche by mainstream economics I argue are the basis of a new kind of economy. And Clay Shirky in 2008 summed up what is so amazing about the technology that we even now have effectively common ownership for all, because it makes it easier for groups of people to assemble to do things together. Now, many people used it to assemble to do things together, like burn down, you know, or assemble burning barricades in various public cities in 2011. But you know, those of us who understand and have read about the theory of business and the firm will know that what this also does is it makes it possible to do what you needed a business to do or a printing press to do before. You can do ad hoc with small and, and actually quite unmanaged uh, groups of people. And what I argue is that we need to take this new wiki Collaborative free sector recognize that it's not a hobby, it's not our escape uh, niche from the horrible world, but just like banks in the 13th and 14th century, it could be the basis of a new economy, unrecognized by the old economy in which it's been born. But in order to make it in, into the beginnings of a new economy, we have to design and manage a transition from now to a situation where we have a benign use of technology, benign use of automation and the uh, use of new, unmanaged and modular forms of organisation to create a different kind of economy. And I've put a list here of what I think it will involve. Um, It will involve embracing automation it will involve detaching work from wages by some form of the basic income proposal whereby the state pays people whether they work or not throughout their entire lives. I think in my transition project the state does different things than it did in communism or social democracy um, the purpose of nas- renationalizing the railways for my mate Jeremy Corbyn is almost like a moral thing, that learned from the 20th century that we want to own this because it's a public good. For me The purpose is to make train travel as cheap as possible. We know that privatisation is best described as how to make things as expensive as possible. Um, But we didn't think of nationalisation, not really, as a way of making things cheap or free. But if you think about it, if the market sector is going to shrink, if wage work is going to shrink, then it's, uh, we, we encounter this problem when we try and talk as trade unionists to the precarious worker. Precarious workers tell trade unionists, look, don't worry about getting me a 5% pay rise, because much though I like that, my pay is shit anyway. Uh, they will say to you, um, much better would be if we could have a, a, a metro system in the city that was almost cheap or free because then I could live my life much easier and then if we had things like public housing that was cheap, then I could actually not have to lie almost like a sardine with people i don 't uh, have a relationship with in the same room every night sharing a room in a place like London or new york so so the state's provision of cheap basic goods is a key thing rather than state planning, state direction of the economy Um, we we take the externalities, the information created by our common uh, usage of information technology and we make them into a public good this is what Barcelona has begun to do under the radical left uh, socialist alliance government that it's got, um, with the smart city project, It said to large corporations, we will have the data not you now given large corporations are, are um, loss leading into many smart city cook projects with all I mean basically all they sell is switches and wires and, and consultancy time. Um, what they're selling you is actually um, the ability to get your information. That, that's what they want, that's the, the thing they're trying to get and for Barcelona and other cities to begin to say no we want technological sovereignty, we will have the, the, the data is a, a major step and a mind bender for these companies but I think it's going to be necessary. I think we have to attack rent-seeking and we have to identify it as the modus operandi of all these global uh, corporations and say no more. You know, in the sense that your government, I don't know what the Australian banking regulation is like in Australia but in my country there has to be four or five banks. You have to have a choice and if you want to move your money from bank A to B it has to happen in 24 hours without question. No, It's friction free uh, to, to use the, the, the word. Um, we should have four Facebooks all interactive with each other, all interoperable. You should be able to move your info from one to the other without noticing. Why haven't we? Because Facebook, (laughs) Google, Apple and the rest spend all their time in the European Commission, no doubt here in in Canberra, certainly in Washington, constantly lobbying against against competition law. Um, We should absolutely, 100%, embrace without question the climate agenda and the zero carbon energy uh, proposal. The only reason I don't bang on about it is because A, we've got expert international bodies that have designed much better transitions than I could uh, and, and, and B the bit I do bang on about is that we need to aggressively um, do it. We need to use some of the, all this other stuff the, the, the collaboration and the information technology to make it happen. But finally you know, if you think about raw materials, that's the big Uh, question that everybody always raises about how would you what would how would you get to a post-capitalist economy given raw materials are scarce well you know in the last 10 years we begin to we've begun to understand far more how possible it is to run a circular economy to reuse raw materials to design reuse into raw materials from the beginning where we use them so you would never have to dig another nickel an ounce of nickel iron uh, platinum or anything else if you really did the circular economy properly. I think that's my transition path. That's my version of how we get from here to something else. But I also have to say that neo-feudalism is also possible. It is also possible that we, and uh, we've always known this, the the French Marxist Andre Gort said, look what they will do is they will try and, when when the the profit motive, when the profit uh, generating capacity of information technology is seen to be actually so weak they will seek as they did just as they did in Cochabamba Bolivia you know when they commercialised and privatised the water supply and then charged everybody ten times as much and, and then the bosses had to leave Cochabamba with their hard drive under their arm as their HQ burned. I mean it, you, they will try to commercialise all aspects of human life. And Gortz said something that, you know, in 1980s he was laughed at, he said look we've got sex work, we know what that is, it's been around a long time, there'll be friendship work soon. We're paying micropayments to people to be your friend. And it, it, what is a nail part? you know, what is a, what, what is a Thai, massage, are Thai massage all around this building you know, what are these places? They are the micro human services being offered to one another uh, because all parts of human life are being commercialised both real and also virtual. Friends, Facebook is friendship work you are doing friendship work for Facebook when you log on okay, now, the thing is Gortz was right, he said you can do it but it's not the third industrial revolution it's micropayments by low-paid people to other low-paid people. The woman who works at Zara buys her lunch at Subway. The guy who serves at the Subway sub uh, buys a shirt eventually when he can afford it at Zara. It's like a circular um, reinforcement of poverty um, that is not technological progress. And on top of that, neo-feudalism. And I've been wondering when a politician would come along who embodied... at what point, and I almost thought it was impossible, at what point will the neoliberal elite which believes in the rule of law, which believes that its current um, model could theoretically benefit everybody, which kind of expresses a belief in the payment of taxes and in globalization, at what point will a section of that elite realize that all that is wrong and that what they should do is actually embrace neo-feudalism embrace the rule of the elite only the end of the rule of law the uh, breakup of globalisation, the head for the exit the don't pay your taxes as a form of uh, a new religion and lo and behold um, (laughs) we've got two people who unashamedly embrace that philosophy now I think here's what I've learned since I've written this book. I think the mistake people like me made was to assume that neoliberalism would last forever. Not forever, but it, the, the, the fight would be between us, the social justice warriors, as they call us, and then. The, the Davos man, the neoliberal international elite, giving their money to charity. You know, Queen Anne of Jordan turns up at the, the Davos every every January and gives a little lecture about the use of Beethoven sonatas in helping the poor. And all of that, <laughs> that was <good. coughs> I was wrong because a section of the elite has detached itself And what is more, this is my current uh, construct about neoliberalism. I don't think Trump is the last. Or that last king of the neoliberal era. I think Trump is a break in neoliberalism. We're all trying to get our own history and explain what it is. I think Trump is the signal that a uh, section of the Daily has said enough of that whole model, we are a liberal model. Another way of looking at it is we've known for about 30 years what a failed communism looks like. It looks like a kleptocratic, authoritarian, right wing nationalist clique rule. In enough countries, for it, to, for it to be a kind of general rule, I think we're never finding out what happens when neoliberalism fails. Modern societies are very susceptible to happiness taking over. And this is what we know now face. Uh, we can stop it. I think we can stop it by resisting it. I think we can resist it alongside, I'm even prepared to say this, alongside the neoliberals. I would stand with Goldman Sachs if it wanted to stand for the rule of law, globalization, multilateral treaties against him. Unfortunately, it is currently populating his uh, family. And that's the the, the, the the culture of war is not hot. It's not real. It's coming to you. I'll finish by saying if, you know, Steve Ban, Trump's chief of staff is right, and quote, unquote, we're going to have a war in South China Sea, I hope he isn't right. I, I will do as much as I could personally. I hope any of you would to try and stop this craziness. But if he's right these that globalisation breaks up into a series of hostile currency and commercial trading blocks, as it did in the 1930s, Australia can't be um, immune to that. What you'll get, I'll make this as a bit of futurology, what you'll get, forget your current party system. There are two parties in Australia, pro-America and pro-China. And you, 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 would, you would begin to read politics almost immediately now as that. You can start looking for that uh, if this idiot um, does what, he, what is his chief of staff is bragging about what they're going to do. They're going to provoke some kind of trade war with China. So, this is serious for everybody. A good old Australian which has ridden the, the coattails of the Chinese commodity demand boom, and boom, and do this on all fiscal stimulus, and got out of the financial crisis um, in a fairly clever way. I don't think you can be immune uh, to, to what is coming, and you certainly are not immune. To the ideological impact of suddenly the most powerful and revered office in the Western democracy, the democratic world, adopting effectively white racism and nationalism. Because, as in my country, it will happen in yours, that, that this guy probably knows where Scotland Trent is, where his UKIP, our right wing party, is trying to beat Labour in a very highly contested by election. I wouldn't be surprised if in his office they're discussing what's happening in this tiny, believing town. Uh, That Adam comes from right now. But soon, they'll be talking about Western Australia. And that is where I'll leave it. Thank you.